I'm Carl Ulrich, Vice Dean of Entrepreneurship and Innovation at the Wharton School, and this is Launchpad, where I talk to successful entrepreneurs about the secrets to launching and growing their startups. I'm very lucky now to be joined by Nat Turner, who's the co-founder and CEO at Flatiron Health. Nat, welcome to Launchpad. Thanks, Carl. You know, the first thing I want to do is give our listeners your website, and it's flatiron.com. And before we get into it, Nat, I got to ask you, did you get the domain first and then name your company or the other way around? The other way around. We had to, unfortunately, pay a pretty penny to get it. <laughs> I was going to say, it's such a good domain. I thought, well, maybe you just had it and then said, oh, I'm going to name my company after that great domain I own. But uh, I wish. We weren't that smart. <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, I like to start off by just having you give us the elevator pitch. So give us the elevator pitch for Flatiron Health. Sure. Yeah. Flatiron is a software company in the healthcare space at the highest level. Specifically, we build software for cancer centers on one side, um, big and small, one-doc practices all the way down in Alabama up to academic medical centers, uh, places like University of Pennsylvania. Um, we build software that helps cancer centers treat patients more effectively, uh, including medical records, um, analytics, clinical trial management, stuff like that. And then on the uh, kind of broader mission, we help generate evidence uh, in cancer research. So that's things like uh, accelerating clinical trials, um, helping generate evidence from real-world information, uh, so routine patient care. And we do that by working with pharmaceutical companies, the FDA, and others. So basically a, a, a giant data platform that works with cancer centers and research organizations. All right. Let, walk us through a little bit what the product actually does or maybe what some of the features are. So let's say we're looking at a, at a midsize health system, University of Pennsylvania, mm -hmm. let's say, which has, uh, actually, I don't know, but I assume we have a can yeah, Abrams of Cancer, Cancer Center, yep. I think. So um, how, how, does a, how does the center and or the physician actually use the software? Yeah, so at most places, UPenn included, there's a electronic health record enterprise system in place. In the case mm -hmm. of Penn, it's probably a system like Epic, mm -hmm. uh, which is a private company. And a lot of data that gets entered into those systems, patient data, is very um, unusable. It's unstructured data. It's PDFs. It's documents. Um, it's not just a simple, clean database like uh, you know most people would think. And so that information just gets stored in some giant database somewhere, you know, just by like a file server. Um, and physicians aren't really able to leverage it for any purpose other than maybe referencing it, you know, every now and then if they need to for billing purposes or whatnot. So if they want to know, for example, how many breast cancer patients have I had in the last two months and which of those patients might be eligible for certain clinical trials um, and which have these specific genetic mutations, that's not a query they can necessarily run um, on that data. So... Our system uh, plugs into that medical record repository that, say, Penn has and organizes the information, structures it, cleans it, normalizes it, whatever we need to do, and gets it into a format that allows Penn's researchers to very easily run um, certain queries on it. So, for example, you know, do patients live longer that get this drug versus that drug um, is, is a question they may want to ask. Or how do, how do our outcomes vary from hospital to hospital in the PIN system? Um, so those are questions that our software allows, uh, say, someone like PIN to, to answer. All right. And and I think PIN does use Epic as its main mm -hmm. EMR system. Is is Does the Flatiron system exist in a parallel world? 
So it's completely redundant with, or I shouldn't say redundant. It it does not supplant the 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 primary uh, uh, patient record. Is that correct? Correct. In the case of Penn Giant Health Systems, they'll almost always use a large enterprise health record system like Epic because Epic mm-hmm. is not specific to cancer. You know, mm-hmm. it has a, a module for every specialty, the, the inpatient hospital, et cetera. We actually do have a medical record um, system ourselves called Onco EMR, but that's mainly used by uh, what we call community practices, which are mm-hmm. eff- effectively non-hospital cancer centers, private practices, if you will. And, very, you know, they're, they, they're very specialized, just often in outpatient medical oncology. And so in the case of those systems um, or those centers, um, our medical record system would typically be the one you'd see. But, yes, in the case of Penn or, or similar health systems, uh, they're almost always going to be using, say, Epic, and we just sit on top. We pull data out of Epic. Uh, we don't supplant the medical record. We're just leveraging it for data analysis on behalf of Penn. Yeah, so I, I got a bunch of questions here about the origins, but I want to, I want to start with this one, which is, I, you know, you didn't call this flat iron oncology. You called it flat iron health. And yet you, you are focused on oncology. Why did you start with oncology and what is unique about oncology? Why not some other area of medicine? Sure. Yeah. So Zach and I, uh, Zach's my co-founder. We started the business in 2012 uh, we were we sold our last business to Google in 2010, and we we basically spent the next two years uh, while we were integrating that business uh, into Google as employees. We started researching uh, next ideas, so to speak, for our mm-hmm. for our next company. Healthcare was an obvious one, uh, just because of how much money is spent on healthcare in the industry and in, in the country. Uh, you know, it's a it's a do well by doing good sort of industry where you can actually make a difference in patients' lives. Um, but cancer became super inspiring for us because I have a, a cousin who's diagnosed with leukemia um, soon before uh, we started researching new ideas. Uh, it was a very difficult case, uh, misdiagnosed a couple of times, number of bone marrow transplants, ended up at St. Jude, uh, a lot of different t- uh, kind of twists and turns in the story. And, you know, that more or less inspired us to start researching cancer. So that that's kind of the original inspiration. But once we dug in, we realized that cancer is not a thing. It's it's a collection of, of potentially hundreds of different diseases that are very different from each other. They're related, but very different. Um, they're defined in many new new ways, such as genetic mutations, which wasn't really um, you know a factor, say, 20, 30 years ago in cancer. And so the opportunity for technology and data was was pretty obvious, actually, once you dug in, because um, it was it was a lot of information, a lot of complexity that humans were having trouble keeping up with. Um, and so that was, that's, that frankly just got us more excited as we dug in in terms of, Hey, our skill set might actually be able to help here. Um, Hmm. That's where it started. Yeah. Well, I'm going to tease you a little bit by saying, so my assumption would be you were a trained oncologist and you were immersed in healthcare and your previous venture was a healthcare company. Am I right about that? Mm -hmm. (laughs) <laughs> Definitely not. <laughs> okay, so tell us a little bit about your ba- I know the answer, but tell us a little bit about your background and about your last business. Because I think it's yeah, a really right. interesting question, what, what, you, what entrep- that entrepreneurs face, which is, do I have to be an industry expert to go into right. an industry? Yeah. yeah, yeah, we get asked this a lot. I think, honestly, it's an advantage that we did not come from the industry. I think that's the case for a lot of entrepreneurs, if you ask, uh, in healthcare. Uh, so my background is similar to Zach's. I went to Penn, uh, your your school, and uh, went to the Wharton School undergrad. 
uh, had a few businesses in high school, mainly around web design, web development, uh, building, building websites for others. Uh, had a few companies ourselves in, in college. Zach and I started a, a campus-oriented um, online food ordering website. Um, the one that we sold to Google was a company called Invite Media, which we started junior year, which was a, a programmatic adver online advertising buying system, um, self-serve, kind of more like a workflow software for ad agencies to buy banner ads in, a, in an automated, optimized way, um, which took off. We were very lucky, the right time. Um, met some great advisors early on that kind of put us on. We weren't ad tech, you know, experts right. either when we started that business, which helped, I think. Um, so our background really is kind of in product management, um, to some degree engineering, but really just, you know, I think, uh, you know, experience in putting together initial teams, putting together ideas, raising money. So we're, we're more serial entrepreneurs than, say, you know, healthcare experts, if you will. But I do think that played a big advantage because when we entered the space, we had no preconceived notions on how things worked. Oncologists also were very relieved uh, to find a couple Googlers interested in their industry. I think they were kind of sick of the, the old old guard, you know, trying mm -hmm. to, to change from within, and they were, they were very open to new approaches. Um, you know, I think they had read about Google investing in Google Health and some other initiatives, even though they may have not have worked, and were just kind of eager for for uh, for new approaches. So we've been yeah. So from that. so tell us a little bit about how you did go about validating the opportunity with oncologists. You you you, you as you say, you're an outsider, and so mm -hmm. how how did you actually do that? We have a unique approach, Zach and I, to starting companies. At least I think it's unique. What we do, uh, he and I can actually put together uh, what we call high-fidelity prototypes. Mm -hmm. um, basically, you know, instead of just talking or showing a, a PowerPoint deck, you know, just, he, just us two, we can actually build um, effectively what looks like a functioning product. Uh, even then, we tell them, you know, hey, this, is not, this might be a canned demo or whatnot, but it looks real. You can click around, um, and, and it, it really kind of... Uh, allows you to have a different level of conversation with, say, an oncologist. So we can walk into an oncologist's office who's probably heard every idea and pitched, been pitched everything. And we could say, hey, you know, let us pull out our, our laptop and show you what we're thinking. And in our original, original idea before Flattern was actually a second opinion service for cancer patients, not too mm -hmm. surprising based on uh, my family member's experience. Uh, and it was, you know, load, upload your data as a patient, get connected with, you know, experts in your disease, specifically over the internet, so you could live anywhere in the country. You didn't have to necessarily be in Houston or New York. Um, and we, we built a, a prototype of it and mm -hmm. literally just started showing it to oncologists. And, of course, they tore it apart, which is exactly what we wanted. And they started giving us very um, good you know, critical feedback that we were able to then iterate on. So instead of just having conversations and, and networking, which we certainly do, we, we uh, you know, essentially – um, would would show demos and um, and garner feedback in a much faster cycle than say you know I think most startups try and do. Um, so that's what we did. Yeah. Now the those so so I, I want to just even at the more micro level, the more tactical level, advising entrepreneurs. Do you literally just pick up the phone, or do you have a friend of a friend who knows an <laughs> oncologist? How did you find these people? Um, you know that's. Again, a networking thing. I, it won't surprise you. You know, having gone to Penn, we the first center we reached out to was Penn. And yeah. you know, as as alumni, or I, I guess I'm an alumni. Zach didn't graduate, but having having studied at Penn, we uh, had a good connection through 
an innovation center, a guy named Roy Rosen, who oh, uh, I know sits Roy, over it. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, so we reached out to Roy you know, and said, hey, you know, we're former students. We'd love to get connected with the Abramson Cancer Center. Uh, would you be willing to, to make the connection? And he, he said, sure, of course. I think after lunch to make sure we weren't crazy. <laughs> mm-hmm. And, um, and you know, I think two or three weeks later, we were sitting in the, the head of the cancer center's office. Uh, he then, I, if I recall, went to residency with a few folks at, at Yale and a few others at, at uh, institutions in New York like Sinai. And he was happy to connect us to those folks. Um, and then, you know, oncology is a small world. Everyone knows each other. And so, yeah. You know, as long as you show your you care and are interested and in, and in have potential, I think you know people are generally are willing to to make the connection. So pretty much after every meeting, we would end the meeting by saying, "Hey, you know, are there two or three folks you'd recommend we talk to next?" Yeah. Um, it kind of spread from there. Yeah, and and you know, you're you're quite modest in describing your your history, but I suspect you know, Invite Media was sold for a lot of money. It was a it was in the news. It was a big deal, and. Mm-hmm. And so you guys had some credentials that you, you right. weren't amateurs, I suppose, as part of the part of the pitch. Yeah, yeah Zach and I actually we, we kind of admit if Flatiron was our first company, you know, say junior year of college, yeah. it probably would not have worked. Um, you know, I, I, healthcare is an industry for better or for worse that kind of falls back on credentials. You know, what mm-hmm. school did you go to? Med school, PhDs, you know, the whole thing, and. Mm-hmm. You know, Zach, having not graduated, and I barely graduated, and I undergrad, <laughs> you know, I think probably would have been difficult to break yeah, into healthcare. Yeah. So, yeah, ha- having a successful outcome, I think, definitely helped. And, and I yeah. think one of the things that helped, too, is Google Ventures, um, pretty early on, even before we left Google, had given us a pretty big stamp of endorsement. You know, they, in fact, came to a lot of those initial meetings. It's one of their partners. Wow. Um, you know, because, and he's a physician, this guy, Dr. Krishna Yeshwan, who's a general partner there. And he actually, you know, effectively chaperoned us, you know, to some of these, you know, say, for example, big centers in Boston, like Dana-Farber, he would actually just be there in the room and say, wow. you know, once, once these guys leave, we're going to be investing. So that certainly helped too. Wow. So, That's yeah. amazing, actually. Nat, so t- tell us a little bit about the validation process and the financing milestones. You described this, I love this 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 idea of high fidelity prototypes you're literally putting web pages websites up in front of people and getting the reaction i love that insight i hope everyone really takes it away and presumably you were doing that without the need for a significant investment that's just you guys right. putting it together yep. what how did you think about the trade off you, you know you guys could have financed your way along quite a while on your on your own how did you think about the trade off between using other people's money versus your own yeah sure so zach and i yeah we actually did fund it for the first i forget how long maybe four or five months um the the so i guess number one in healthcare as i think a lot of entrepreneurs can commiserate with it's pretty expensive to start a healthcare it company and you know based on hipaa and all the regulations you need to comply with so pretty quickly we need we realized we needed a a bigger team than say zach and i and and Mm -hmm. even bigger than the initial five or six people we had hired by that point so that was number one. We certainly needed capital and gunpowder to, you know, get to say 20, 30, 40 people. And by that point, I think, you know, it, it you really do want to start bringing in other partners. The, the one thing I will say though, uh, taking investment is m- much more than just capital. And, and Zach and I, I think realize this with invite, you know, when you have someone like Google Ventures, say, for example, around the table and on your website and on your pitch decks, it's, it's validation, it's brand cover that, someone else has, you know, diligenced your team and your product and is willing to put money behind it. 
And so it, it provides a sense of, you know, social proof that uh, you, you should be taken seriously. So, you know, we actually very intentionally chose Google Ventures. They actually weren't, um, I'm sure they won't mind me saying, they weren't necessarily even the best terms that we got from, mm-hmm. in terms of term sheets from venture capital firms uh, when we were raising our initial round. Uh, but we went with them because of the name and the, and the um, affiliation we had with our prior business. So we raised an $8 million seed round, um, followed by, or which followed Zach and I's original investment, um, which was quite a large seed round. I think you know, much oh, larger yeah. than I think most most uh, tech startups. Yeah, but, I call that a Series B. By the right. way, <laughs> just yeah. kidding. Yeah, yeah. maybe yeah. so. But for yeah. us, you know, we were in healthcare. We yeah. knew we had big dreams, big visions, and it wouldn't really be possible. I'm really, I'm really thankful we actually made that decision. It's more dilution than than you would expect in an early stage seed round. But you know, it, it, again, it allowed us to get to a team of say 30 or 40 pretty quickly. Um, which we felt was necessary to achieve the milestones of the Series A. Our Series A was also pretty unusual, so we raised $130 million. Um, you know, I, I guess we technically called that our B round, but it was our, our you know, post-seed round. And, um, you know, again, that because we raised a large seed round, which allowed us a lot further runway and a bigger team, we were able to make more progress, which led to that, you know, quite substantial round. Mm-hmm. So. Uh, how, how do you spend a hundred and, and by the way, I, you've raised an even bigger, you've raised a, I guess it would be your B, which is, was what, I don't know, a hundred more than that. 160, right. something like that. Yeah. Right. Our third round, we raised uh 190 million. Yeah. About a year ago. All right. That's a huge amount of money. How do you spend that kind of money? Is that, is that, uh, is that all people pretty much? Yeah. So our second round, we actually spent a, a pretty significant portion on an acquisition, um, in mm-hmm. fact, pretty similar amount in size to the company we sold uh, to Google in terms of deal price. So it was uh, really a, a you know opportunistic thing we we took advantage of where we there was a great asset available that would fit perfectly with our business, which I'm really pleased to say you know worked worked out as such. Uh, yeah. In terms of the series, you know the, the third round we just did Series C, which we announced. I mean, yeah, it's very easy actually to find ways to spend money in cancer. Uh, there's, it's such a hard disease to tackle, um, even with a software approach. And you know, I'd say the vast majority of that is earmarked towards engineering and product management uh, people uh, and, and oncologists. We have more oncologists than most cancer centers do working at Flatiron. And we always joke if the software thing doesn't work, we should just start a cancer center. Um, I mean, so we have I think 10 or 12 oncologists. We have 20 nurses. We have you know, it's a very big clinical yeah. team, pharmacists. And so, yeah, I'd say the large majority is people. There's very little capital expenditure you need in a business, yeah. in a software business like this. So uh, talk a little bit about this third round. If I if I can trust what I read on Crunchbase, mm-hmm. it was uh, at least a big part of that was from Roche. And I would consider that a strategic investor. How, sure. how, do, you, how do you think about taking money from a strategic like that, which to some extent could constrain your future? I mean, that's, I guess, the question. Does it constrain yeah. your future? Yeah. Yeah, it's a great question. We actually struggled with that quite a bit. We had offers from mutual funds, from VCs, from private equity, from other strategics, uh, which we were very thankful for. And Roche was not the most obvious partner to work with at the time. This was about a year and a half ago. Mm-hmm. Um, but one thing to know about Roche, they happen to be the leading cancer drug company in the world by a factor of three in terms of sales. And if you ask any oncologist, most of the 
big drugs. I think three of the top five, perhaps, in terms of sales, uh, Roche slash Genentech, which they acquired, mm-hmm. um, own, and they're in their portfolio. So it's not, you know, we basically made a decision. If we're going to work with a strategic um, on the pharmaceutical side, we'd really prefer it to be the biggest because, mm-hmm. you know, then others, you know, might look to that and say, hey, you know, that's, you know, the, the, the biggest and the best basically validated Flatiron. Um, and they might be, stri- you know, striving to be like Eurosh perhaps. And so they might even increase their business with Flatiron. So really it was a, a conversation around, you know, would they accelerate our business first and foremost? So we, you know, that's things like, you know, asking for uh, full-time, you know, support from their staff, access to, say, clinical trials from their portfolio. Um, you know, the CEO of Roche Pharma is on our board, Dan O'Day, who provides us a tremendous insight that you wouldn't really get from any venture capital firm just because he is your customer and he's in your boardroom telling you his real-time reactions to what your, your roadmap is. Um, and again, it was a decision of, of would the other companies in the industry increase their business or decrease? And our, our hypothesis was that it would be increased because Roche, uh, again, was number one. Uh, if they were number three or four or five, you know, I think you would jeopardize the ones above them working with you. Right. Um, but in this case, it, it, you know, a year later, I'm you know, pleased to say it actually worked out quite well. Um, so we're, we're, we're very happy. And we actually ended up bringing in two other strategics in the round, Celgene and Amgen, who were uh, existing clients of ours in a much smaller capacity, but uh, equal in terms of uh, voice, you know, so they were able mm-hmm. to participate in our feedback sessions. Um, they understand our roadmap. You know, we send them investor updates. You know, it's a much closer collaboration than, than say, just a typical client. So uh, that worked out well as well. Great. All right. I want to shift gears just here a little bit and take this opportunity at this particular unique time in American history to ask the question about the Affordable Care Act and about healthcare costs. Um, we're up over 20% of GDP on healthcare right now. Mm-hmm. What, what's, what's your insights into what can be done to reduce costs in healthcare in the U.S.? Great question. You know, we're obviously in our cancer world, which I think at last uh, time I looked was about 10 or 15 percent of mm-hmm. our total medical spend. You know, I think the biggest thing that the Affordable Care Act is pushing, which I hope is maintained, is this push for value-based care as opposed for fee-for-service. Um, so we're getting paid for outcomes instead of volume. You know that that is a that's not the only part of ACA. You know it's it's different yeah. from you know the the uh, healthcare exchanges and the mandate and all those other things, but you know their their first pass at things like accountable care organizations um, is really a push towards that you know outcomes based or value based pricing. I think I think if we can get the you know hospital industry in particular and even the physician clinic industry to really keep going down that direction. Uh, and, and move towards bundles, move towards capitation perhaps. And cancer, to be honest, might be the last one this makes sense because of how complicated it is. Mm-hmm. But that's, I really hope, is in with you know the Center for Medicaid and Medicare Innovation, CMMI, uh, which is part of CMS, you know, they do a lot of experiments around new payment models that are voluntary for the most part. They should be voluntary. Um, I really hope those things continue because I think that's one of the best ways we can look to look to decrease costs, um, for sure. Um, and I am nervous that those things go away, to be honest. But yeah, I think we're day. all all nervous, and, and we hope yeah. that some some logic will prevail and that, you know, maybe this crisis, maybe this opportunity will actually give rise to some innovative thinking and some some yep. some better solutions so that we can all be helpful for that. Yep. Um, 
All right, now, well, remarkably, we're we're out of time, but it was really interesting, and thanks so much for taking the time to to join us. Of course, thanks for having me. All right, uh, you can keep up with Nat on Twitter at Nat S Turner, and to learn more about Flatiron, www.flatiron.com. I'm Carl Ulrich, Vice Dean of Entrepreneurship and Innovation at Wharton. Launchpad is produced by Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School, on Sirius XM, Channel 111.